We'll be in the book of 2 Corinthians, starting a new series today, a new book of the Bible. Exciting, exciting times. We were in 1 Timothy. I, I looked back. It was almost nine months. I, I thought it was much shorter than that. First, or, sorry, 2 Corinthians, it, it will be a while that we're in this book. I hope that you know it and love it and cherish it um, very, very soon, as much as I do. The kingdom of God is often referred by theologians as the upside-down kingdom. Not in the sense that it's mismanaged or corrupt or something like that. It doesn't reflect the fact that God needs help in any way to accomplishing his purposes. Actually, it shows us that and what it reflects is that God uses often the most unlikely people and the most foolish methods, according to the world, to accomplish his own purposes. The attributes that we see in Scripture that define or should define Christians are not anything that the world would ever value. Humility, godliness, ordinary daily faithfulness, kindness and gentleness, not striving to be ahead but putting others before yourself. These things the world despises. Indeed, the preaching of the word of God is despised. And so it seems that the people of God are often the people that are failures, forgotten, the persecuted, the poor, the weak. These are the people that God often uses to accomplish his purposes. Look at Adam and Eve. They were failures. When they failed, God restored them and accomplished great work through their lives. From Jacob to Joseph to Gideon to Samson to David to all the prophets to Jesus Christ. These are often not strong men or women, but weak and lowly. God seems to delight in using weak and lowly people in the world to achieve his ends, even in the most desperate of circumstances. Paul knows this to be true, and this is really one of the themes of the letter of 2 Corinthians. I'll be reading the first 11 verses of 2 Corinthians. Would you please stand for God's almighty and inerrant word, the reading of God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength 
that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, so that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts. Let the word of God strike a straight blow. Lord, we need to hear truth. We pray that our hearts would be receptive to it. Pray that every word that I say would be true and accurate, and that our hearts would receive everything as your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon is From Weakness to Glory. I'm going to talk about the background of 2 Corinthians just a moment so that you understand the context. I'm not going to return to this background data again, probably that much for the next, whatever, 6, 9, 12 months uh, that we're in 2 Corinthians. So I want to cover it really well here. Then we're going to talk about how Paul makes his defense and then show why this matters to us today. First, the background of 2 Corinthians. Paul had established the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. We can read about this in Acts chapter 18. I encourage you to do this on your own. Go back and read Acts 18 and you'll read about the establishing of the church. He was there 18 months. He was there a long time, a year and a half. As was his custom, he started in the synagogue and then he went when he was rejected by the Jews. Most of the Jews, he went to the Gentiles. And in short, the church flourished. After he left, it seems that the church was infiltrated by some bad preachers and teachers. Uh, They set a very low bar for God's word. They had a different gospel than the gospel Paul preached. It was an easy gospel. It was about the happiness of people and it was about their own wealth. And it seems that immorality abounded in the church So Paul began writing letters. Most agree that Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. We have two of them. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians. I'm going to tell you about all of them. It's not a difficult trail to follow. The two letters that we still have are probably letter number two and letter number four. All right, here's a summary of the letters. The first letter, so Paul left, of course, and he writes a letter to try to correct and, and, and kind of rein in these false teachers, these bad preachers, and address the immorality. Again, we don't have this letter. We don't know exactly what's in it, but it is referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter to tell you not to associate with sexually immoral people. So in the first letter, again, which is lost to us by God's good providence, um, Paul says that he told the church not to associate with immoral people, those who claim to be Christians but embrace the lusts of the world and the lusts of the flesh. Apparently, many people in the church were angry about this letter, we think, because in 1 Corinthians, he addresses this as well, and that would be the second letter. 
what we now have is 1 Corinthians. He addresses again these problems and he also answers questions that came to him from the church that met in Chloe's house. He discussed the simplicity of the gospel, morality, worship, the resurrection. But the church seems so thoroughly impacted by these self-serving preachers and teachers and so immersed in the Corinthian culture that rebellion and immorality seem to persist after this letter. So he received some reports back, apparently, because he made another trip to Corinth to try to address this in person. He's written two letters. There are still problems, so he goes in person. This is his second time to spend time with the Corinthian church. And this is a sorrowful trip. We know this because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he mentions this second trip. And he says it was a sorrowful time. And while he was there, he was probably directly confronted by one of these elders, by one of these false teachers, by one of these pastors or preachers, and insulted and confronted to his apostleship. This is addressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So he leaves and he's very sorry for the church. He writes a third letter. The sorrowful letter, it's the severe letter, it's called by theologians. Again, we don't have this one. Um, It's referenced by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2. He sent this letter with Titus, and he's, uh, when Titus returns, he's rejoicing that many in the church had repented and received him back and professed love for Paul. But there still seems to be a strong minority that despise Paul's authority as an apostle that are still embracing these preachers who are teaching a different gospel. So this is the summary before getting to 2 Corinthians. Paul started this church. He's written them three letters now. He's visited once. Um, There seems to be some movement away from these false teachers and back to the gospel. There seems to be some movement away from the immoral culture and back to Paul's gospel. And yet he still knows that there is work to be done. So this is the situation that brings about 2 Corinthians. Paul is still sorry. He's broken in his heart. And it comes through in 1 Corinthians, the second letter, and in 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter. Paul writes in a state of weakness. He writes to defend his authority as an apostle and his teaching as an apostle. And you need to remember that to reject Paul's teaching or to reject Paul's apostleship, it's the same thing. You're rejecting God and his gospel. Because, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he summarizes that our message is the word of God. Paul's message is the word of God. So they can't accept Paul and reject his message or vice versa. Nor can anyone. It's Holy Scripture. So that's the background. The Word of God is suffering in the church. The church is increasingly influenced by bad teachers, by culture. And rather than just let this continue, Paul is writing once again to effect change. So the second point, how does Paul do this? How does he defend his apostolic call, his methods, his gospel, his teaching? What does he do? You need to know that he was accused of being unreliable. We know this all in the book of 2 Corinthians because he addresses each thing. He's accused of being unreliable, chapter 1. He's accused of not really even being an apostle, chapter 1. He's accused of lording his authority over them, 
He's also accused of not being a good preacher. He's not eloquent. He's not very strong or powerful. His oratory has much to be desired. So what's Paul's answer to these charges? Again, we will address these in great detail, but I'm just going to touch on them because there's application for us as well. First, Paul chooses to focus on his call from God. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is an interesting way to open the letter, to mention that he is an apostle by the will of God, and yet this is what the church needed to remember. Also in chapter 2, verse 17, we see it again. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He's contrasting himself with these other preachers who are disturbing the peace and the gospel of God. And he says, I'm not a peddler, but I've been commissioned by God, and I speak for God. And he goes on many other times to say similar things. The application for us is clear. You're not all preachers. But similarly, your calling and your election give you great confidence in life. They're a source of strength to be faithful. It's not based on your abilities. It's not based on your eloquence. Your duty as a Christian is based on your calling as a Christian. And he who called you is faithful. Secondly, Paul focuses on the gospel. On the gospel. In chapter 4, he says, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He focuses on his gospel, on the gospel. He's not going to try to, to coddle them. He's not going to try to impress them. He's going to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's true. Of course, the application for us is that the gospel truth is for us every day. And this also gives us great confidence in this world. We can be confident as we live the gospel, as we share the gospel. The work is God's and we have truth. You have something, if you know the gospel, you have something that the world does not know. And that's the truth of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, Paul revels in his weakness. He's accused of being a weak preacher. He's accused of being a weak apostle or not even being an apostle. And he doesn't reject this. He embraces it. Chapter 11, he says, If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Chapter 12, he says, "If But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. I was thinking about this this week, and Martin Luther keeps coming to mind. He describes a particular incident when he felt he was being accused by Satan himself. And he said, Satan, everything you say about me is true. But there's so much more that you don't know. 
And yet I am redeemed by the blood of Christ. The application for us is God uses weak people like us. He used Paul in his weakness to accomplish a great work. You need to trust him and move out in what he's called you to do. Fourthly, Paul shares that he suffered immensely, but he's glorying almost in the suffering that has come his way. Chapter 6, he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities, beatings and imprisonments, riots and labors, sleepless nights and hunger. He commends himself to them in light of all of his suffering for the gospel. He says later, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor and yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Of course, none of us wants suffering and yet we know That if we are faithful to God, suffering is coming. Persecution is coming. Because this world hates us and Satan hates us as well. So in this life, suffering is a sign often of Satan's own anger. But it's also, on the flip side, something God uses for his great glorious purposes. God using you in a special way to achieve gospel kingdom purposes. And for this reason, Paul seems to glory in his suffering, in his weakness. He says, indeed, that his weak ministry is strong in Christ. He relies not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. He says in chapter 5, I know if this earthly tent, this earthly home is destroyed, that I am going to be with God forever in heaven. So, we are always of good courage, he says. So the Corinthians who seek to accuse Paul of being weak in speech... Weak as a man, as an apostle, they play right into the Lord's hands. Because Paul says, yes, this is true. I am humble. I've been sanctified. I've been beset with trials. But God has purchased me. And I'm completely certain that he has called me to be an apostle. And I will continue to serve until he returns. Jesus also told us about this upside-down kingdom in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, he begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Certainly Paul had known that Jesus had said these words. Certainly Paul comforted himself in all the persecution and all the reviling and all the slander. So the ways of God are not like the ways of this world. That's one of the things that we're going to learn in 2 Corinthians over the next few months. God uses the foolish things in the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. 
and Christ's lens for ministry and for life for all of his people is often the lens of suffering. Because in Christ's economy, weakness and suffering produce great kingdom glory for God's sake. So Paul does address these false teachers, these preachers who were against him, but also he has to address the culture because the culture, the Corinthian culture, was very strong and weighing down upon the church in Corinth, which is where I want to bring our applicability of 2 Corinthians for us as well. This is the third point. Corinthian culture shares a lot of similarities with our own culture. If we are an increasingly post-Christian culture, moving away from God, they were a pre-Christian culture that was also godless, although moving in slow steps toward God because of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, although we were in different ends of the spear of godliness, the, the results seemed to be the same. Let me tell you just a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was destroyed by an earthquake. It was uninhabited for about 50 years or so. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt the city in about 50 years before Christ. In the first century BC, there wasn't, after the city was rebuilt, there wasn't a pre existing landed aristocracy as there were in so many other Roman cities or Greek cities, people who had been there for generation after generation and had kind of ruled the area. This did not exist in Corinth. So by the time of Paul, about a hundred years after the city had been rebuilt, the influential people were just the most rich, the most wealthy. Again, they didn't have a landed aristocracy the way most other cities did. So former slaves, freedmen, and retired soldiers were sent to Corinth. They worked hard, and because of its location, they became wealthy. They built up the city, and they became the new aristocracy in Corinth. By the time of Paul, they were the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Very prestigious, wealthy, prosperous, sensuous, worldly with about one million people that lived there. And a few little churches of Jesus. Why were they wealthy? Because of their location on an isthmus. isthmus. I practice this word, I just can't say it, sorry. It's a bit of land that stretches down, connecting another bit of land, and they were right in that little land bridge. It was important. It's kind of like the Panama Canal, only it wasn't a, a canal. It was a road connecting the two bodies of water across this little land bridge right in the middle of Corinth. So ships, instead of having to go around between Crete and Greece, which is a very treacherous piece of water, they could just park right there at Corinth and ship their goods across that, that stretch of land. And that brought great trade. It brought great wealth into the city of Corinth. So it was a wealthy place. It was proud. It was prosperous. They became wealthy by their hard work, by their competitive nature. They were a competitive culture. Does all this sound familiar? A very competitive culture, self-made men. They considered success the validation of any task 
Very pragmatic view of life. If it works, it must be right. The ends must justify the means. Give me results. That's the thing that we will do. They were immoral and sensuous. They were so famously sexually immoral that Corinthian was an adjective used all over the Roman Empire. If you were a Corinthian woman, that just meant you were very loose. You were a prostitute of some kind. So loose were the morals of Corinth. The temple of Aphrodite stood in the city square and it employed 1,000 or more sexual cult prostitutes. Can you imagine? And they were seemingly proud of this, of their sexual diversity and reputation. They were also pleasure-seeking. They loved entertainment. They saw life through a lens of pleasure and success. Easy living was a validation of success. Suffering and weakness were signs of failure. They were a sports-focused culture. They hosted an athletic games that were only second to the Olympics. So it's no surprise that Paul has athletic analogies, metaphors used through his letter because this is a culture that's focused on sports. And it was also a pagan culture. The choice of gods was mesmerizing. A dozen temples or more stood in Corinth made it possible to worship whatever you wanted, the God of your choice. Pick your God, the one you like the best, which meant you worshipped yourself. You worshipped a God made in your own image. Here's the key. Today we face many of the same cultural problems that Corinth faced, many of the same things. It feels often like the church is impotent to stop the crumbling of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian culture seems to have become a godless desert. And we don't know how to get rain to this place. There are many who still attend church, but our impact on the culture seems negligible. And think of how far we have fallen. This is probably most clearly seen in the world of the sexual revolution that's sweeping across civilization right now, at least in the West. The similarities with the Corinthian culture seem almost identical. Dostoevsky wrote, If God is dead, then everything is permitted. It seems this is why God is so rejected in our culture, because then we can do what we want. Of course, They're ignoring something they know to be true in their hearts. And yet pantheism had produced the same effect in Corinth. Everything sexual was permitted. And there is a connection. Dr. Doug Kelly notes that there is a great connection, a strong connection between idolatry and adultery. A rejection of God and sexual immorality are closely intertwined. We see this in Romans Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this very argument when describing how the people of Rome and really the people of the earth had fallen. Starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Our culture, as it rejects God, is just doing what has always happened at the rejection of God. What is that? Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. How did this happen? They rejected God. They rejected the one true God. There seems to be a direct link between modernity today and a rejection of God and sexual license, of which homosexuality is one small part. And God will eventually give a culture what it desires This was the same thing that was happening in the Corinthian world, in the world of Corinth. So for Paul, the odds were overwhelming. What could the church do? What should the church do? This sexual ethic was even finding its way into the church. Sound familiar? What was to be done? How could this little New Testament church impact a city of a million people? How can Little Meadow Creek impact a whole culture for Christ? Do we even matter? Does our church make a difference? Does the church of Jesus Christ matter? Yes. Well, what is to be done? We have to focus on what is important. You've heard this before. David Wells wrote in God in the Wasteland. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, antiquated music, and those who want to squander the church's resources, bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today, in Christians today, is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. The truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. His Christ is too common. The New Testament is clear that the love of God and the love of the world are in competition with each other. And our love for God has dimmed. And our love for the world has grown. Paul states the answer in a beautifully simple way in 1 Corinthians 1. To preach the word of the cross. It's in this context that we have great hope. Paul's gospel and his apostleship still matter for us today. What are we to do? We're to pursue the holy God. 
Isn't it interesting that the same things that have always plagued God's people continue to plague God's people? What did God tell us to do in the very beginning when he gave the law to Moses and the Israelites? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This means you roll out of bed and you think about God. Well, how does that happen? You pray. You ask the Holy Spirit to enliven your heart with a love for Christ. You spend time in his word. If you feel like God is weightless in your life, you ask God to help you change that. And we're not discouraged because we can see that God uses weak people like us to accomplish his purposes all through history. Are you feeling weak, spiritually weak? God will use you as a trophy of his grace to draw people to himself. So this gives us courage. We must live for Christ alone. We must communicate Christ with our words and with our lives. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says that because Christ is in us, he leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere we go, people think, like they saw the apostles. Remember the Pharisees took note that the apostles had been with Jesus. That's what people should see when they see us. That person has been with Jesus. So we're not to despair in the culture that God has placed us. This is for God's glory. And the Bible and history are full of examples of God's ability to change hopeless situations. What happens to cause this to come about? People turn from the world and turn to God, to the holy God. God can change our culture. We do not lose heart. We are confident that what he has told us will happen, that his word will not return void. And our method for Christian service is the same as Paul's, and it's as relevant now as it was to the Corinthians. Dr. Jeff Grogan said it's faithfulness to the gospel, sensitivity to people, humility of Christ, acceptance of the cross, a willingness to be persecuted and reviled for the sake of Christ. So I offer you what Paul offers you, the glory of the gospel through human weakness, your service to the world might cost you something. You might not feel like you are adequate for the task. But in 2 Corinthians, we're going to see just the opposite. That you will boast in your weakness as God uses you for his gospel kingdom, for his own glory, because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to cover three words of the first chapter. I haven't touched the first chapter, but we did read part of it. The three words I want to discuss as we approach the Lord's table are grace and peace. This is Paul's greeting. We can only have peace with God by the grace of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know what it means to love Christ, if you don't know the work that he's done to bring you from death and into spiritual life, then turn to Christ right now. Because only by the grace of God can you have this knowledge, and only by the grace of God can you be saved and have peace. If you come to him, he promises that he will cast out no one. As we approach the Lord's table, 
would like to just talk a moment about who can receive the Lord's Supper at Meadow Creek.